Thank you, Brian. Good morning, Forest Hills. It's certainly a privilege uh, to have this opportunity on this day. And uh, Brian has alluded to that season. It was 10 years ago when we spent uh, some time here and uh, just were part of this fellowship. And uh, it was a precious time for us. Brian and I have continued to pray for this church, prayed for the church, certainly through these last couple years. Um, are really encouraged with the decisions you've made and the choices you've made and uh, just have every, every uh, sense of uh, God's blessing and, and bright future for you. And uh, thankful for Craig. Thank you for, or thankful for times Craig has continued to check in with us up at Lake Ann or in Traverse City or even at the National Park up there. And uh, it's fun to, to share this day. Good for you for marking the significance of installing a new pastor here. Let me invite you to turn to Acts 14. Acts 14. I'm going to begin at verse 8 and read down to verse 23 for our text this morning. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Why this text this morning? 
Uh, there's a number of things we could pull some threads out of this fabric. But think of the, uh, the book of Acts not merely as a history, like a series of newspaper accounts of what happened, but a deliberately put together story of the advancement of work of Christ in the world after Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit. And we see the church find its feet and find its understanding of what it's called to be in the world in this age. It faces a number of tests and by God's Spirit moves through those tests to an understanding of what the church is supposed to do. Think of uh, uh, in Acts 10, um, Cornelius, a Gentile, calls for Peter to come and present the gospel. And through some visions and some understanding, there's this test that, yes, the gospel is for the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit can be poured out on the Gentiles. Or Acts 15, the question, do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become part of the people of God? Do they need to observe circumcision? It's a test. What is the freedom that comes with the gospel? Um, the commitment to faith in Christ alone. The church succeeds in passing that test because it's clarified that uh, you didn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You placed your faith in Christ. The storyline through Acts is full of these encounters and these tests, these clarifications for the church. Here in Acts 14, what's often called the first missionary journey of Paul, he's going through some cities, Paul and Barnabas in what we would today call Turkey, in that region, and we're seeing the church become established in Gentile realms. And particularly here at Lystra, it's interesting, it comes to a place where there is no Jewish pre-understanding. You, you know when Paul would go into a city to preach, he would first kind of go find the Jews. He'd find the synagogue, people who would have kind of a, a biblical understanding of the living God and, and scripture from the Old Testament. He would build on that base, pre proclaim the gospel. Some would receive it, some would reject it. He would then go with that base and go to the city, to the Gentiles and continue the proclamation of the gospel. But that was kind of his strategy. Here in Lystra, there's no... Uh, no expectation or no indication there's a synagogue there or any kind of Jewish presence. He's going into a city that has no biblical background whatsoever. How does the gospel come into this place? And can the gospel be compatible with false teaching, kind of blended together? And the test proves very clearly that, no, there are false things that are not compatible with the gospel that must be identified and challenged for the gospel in its truth and beauty to be received. So I want to work kind of through the passage and, and make sure we're understanding what's in this text and then kind of flesh out some significance for this day and this season at Forest Hills. These events at Lystra are about 
19, 20 miles from Iconium, the place where Paul, we're told, had been for some time, but where opposition had been stirred up. He left, made this long day's journey to Lystra to begin a new ministry in a place that did not know the biblical story. Paul arrives, he's proclaiming the gospel, and there's a man there, crippled since birth, and Paul perceives his faith response to what he is hearing. And Paul invites him, commands him to stand up and walk. Now, we don't have a lot of time to kind of uh, work through the significance of miracles, but, but you understand miracles like this are not just spectacles. They're not just show-off power uh, encounters. They come to authenticate the message that the, the apostle is speaking and point to the restorative nature that comes with the gospel, that God is coming to us to restore what's broken and set right what is wrong. And we find very often that where the gospel is kind of breaking in new ground into a new place, the apostles would, would, would demonstrate um, the wonder of the gospel with a sign like this to authenticate the truth and the reality of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And it's important to remember that when Paul is presenting the gospel, He's presenting the whole gospel. Uh, you, as a church, I know, are well-versed in the contours of the gospel and the redemptive story. It's often summarized in four movements. A good God created a good creation, all things at peace, all things in fellowship with Him and with one another. But humans rebelled against God rejected God's authority, sinned against him, and brought with that death, alienation, brokenness, curse, everything wrong. But God didn't abandon us to that outcome. He broke in in Jesus Christ, God taking on human flesh, living an obedient life, dying the death we deserve. God vindicated him, raising him from the dead, declaring that in Christ all things are reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And that fourth movement, Christ is one day coming again to culminate the setting it right project and with a new heaven and new earth make all things the way they should have been and more. Four movements, the creation, good, the fall, rebellion, death, Christ, death, resurrection, and that coming day. Often we assume, those of us who have spent most of our lives in the church or in the Christian uh, ecosystem, we, we kind of talk about those middle two uh, movements. You're a sinner, Christ died, believe in him. As, and those are true. They're, they're not untrue, but they're untethered from the whole story for people who don't know the whole story. Paul is in this city and he's coming to people who don't know the story. And we are living increasingly in the context of a 
culture that doesn't know the story. And if we start in the middle, it doesn't make much sense. You know, even in when Paul and Barnabas are trying to correct things with the, with the crowds there, he starts with creation to point out the difference to their false belief and the true good news of the gospel. He talks about a God who created everything. Right? All the four parts of that story. So Paul is here. He finds a response to the the good news of the gospel. Uh, this, this man is healed. He springs up. He's leaping around. You hear the echoes of Isaiah 35, which talk about that day when God will break in and deliver and the lame will leap like a deer. It's not the only place where this happens, but it's kind of reinforced in multiple occurrences throughout the New Testament. So Paul's there. He's proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is finding receptivity because the Spirit is at work with the Word for those, uh, at least this individual who hears it. We hear of other disciples there. But the great bulk of the city comes up with a different interpretation of what's going on. They note the crippled man is healed, but they assign the significance incorrectly. They say the gods, the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes are here. Now, we know from scholars some background to this. That actually in this region, there's a legend that would have been well known to the people in this community that sometime in the past, Zeus and Hermes had come disguised as common people looking for hospitality. And they went from home to home, place to place, and were rejected until finally coming to the home of an old couple. This elderly couple received them extended hospitality. Those who had rejected them, they brought down judgment. And the couple that received them, they gave great blessings. So this informs the background of kind of the narrative of how the world works in this pagan culture. And it's interesting, uh, probably not a lot of people in this meeting today, in this community, worship Zeus and Hermes. Um, but there's something about idols that's familiar. There's really only two motives to serve idols. One is to keep bad things from happening, and the other is to hope good things will happen. Idols are those things we elevate in our lives that give life its highest meaning, and if we have it, life is fulfilled, and if we don't have it, life has lost significance. We might as well die. Idols may look different here than they did at Lystra, but that motivation is what causes the compass of our heart to be pulled away to the idols that we think can satisfy us. 
Now the text says, uh, the crowds, as they have seen this miracle, start speaking in Lyconian. Now, Paul and Barnabas, I don't think know Lyconian. But they would have known Greek. They would have probably conversed in Greek. People there would have known Greek. Very common then, as it is in many places in the world today, there are trade languages that kind of we all understand. We can converse in Greek there. Um, but there's local languages. Um, and when the most important things of uh, what's going on, people default to their heart language. They're speaking Lyconian. Paul doesn't know exactly what's going on. Barnabas doesn't know exactly what they mean, but they're saying Zeus and Hermes are here. Let's, uh, let's not fail to extend hospitality. And uh, all things start getting set in motion uh, to have a great feast, a sacrifice, all these things. Finally, Paul and Barnabas figure out what's going on. And they're confronted with this reality. The gospel can't coexist with the worship of these false idols. When the gospel comes, sometimes it comes to places where there are deserts and sometimes it comes to places where there are jungles. What do I mean? Sometimes it's a desert. That means it's barren but full of potential. You just plant, you water, and it blooms. But sometimes it's overgrown with uh, the jungle growth of invasive species that need to be uprooted and cleared before the truth of the gospel can flourish. You see, if, if Paul had come in there and said, well, they've got kind of a view of the world that works for them, and if we could just add a little Jesus on the plate, to kind of mix it together, maybe we could move forward. Maybe we find even greater receptivity. That's not how it works. Things that are false, things that will draw the heart away from God to recognize and submit and rejoice in Him cannot be the ground in which true faith will flourish. Paul and Barnabas go, they start with the core elements of the gospel. God created everything, land, earth, sea, it comes from him. In fact, every good thing comes from him. When you have food, when you have rain, when you have joy, that comes from God. He's touching on those core things, why you worship idols. You think they bring the good things. They think they protect you from the bad things. Paul says, the food, the rain, the idols, are, are the... Um, uh, uh, the joy that you've experienced, it has a source, the one true living God. He's clearing the jungle. Now, do you ever think it's interesting you get a text like this and one minute people are ready to sacrifice animals to praise and worship Paul and Barnabas and the next moment we find out that Paul is getting stoned. He's being executed. I mean, that is a reversal. 
right? When we come to Holy Week, you, you, you must wrestle with that question sometimes. How can the crowds on Sunday cheer Hosanna and by Friday they're shouting crucify? Like, how can that train, that turn come about? Well, it comes about when um, people's expectation of, of, of what Paul should be or what Jesus should be isn't what they fulfill. And in fact, they point out the idols of the heart and say, you have to choose. And when you start meddling with people's idols, they get really angry. Because again, if you lose your idol, you either are angry enough to die or to kill, but your life has lost meaning. And when Jesus didn't fulfill the expectation of the crowds to come and banish Rome, they said, this is not the Messiah we're looking for. When Paul says, like, no, not only am I not uh, Hermes, like that's a vain thing that's keeping you from life. And they're confronted with this choice, grip the more tightly to the idols or clear them out to turn from idols to the true and living God, to use New Testament language. So how has this text, there's many things we could pull from this, but what is, what is the significance I want to spend some time considering today? I want to consider a little bit about how the cultural background that gave rise to a view of the world there in Lystra invites us to reflect on the cultural background of this moment, day, and place that will be part of what you will face, Craig, in this church for all the days you're here. And I want to identify one of that aspects of this cultural moment as modern consumerism. Now, you're not expecting me to say that, but, but, but just hang with me a little bit here. Um, some of you first hear that and you say, oh, I'm going to go after uh, greed or uh, materialism or covetousness. Um, all of those are worth addressing. And if that's your issue, like deal with that issue, but that's not actually what I want to talk about. Those are kind of the idols, the things that grow up in the soil of the culture. I want to talk about the framework of the culture that gives great opportunity for those things to grow and provides increasingly challenging conditions for the gospel to be clearly embraced. So modern consumerism, this, this cultural construct within which we all live and often don't even reflect on, is something that puts us as individuals in the command center, the driver's seat to all of life. And the centrality of consumer behavior is this invitation or commitment to self-creation. That 
the belief that we are somehow autonomous in the project of defining ourselves and that nothing should impose on us any kind of expectation during that project. Whatever tradition, whatever revelation, whatever institutions, what even outmoded notions of human nature have imposed on other people aren't restrictive on us. We are free to make what we want of the world and nothing has weight or authority to speak to that. As consumers, we are curators. Now think of the shift that is from earlier times. Earlier times, it was assumed that there was a reality out there, a way that things worked, and you as an individual, you needed to conform to that reality. If gravity is real, you do well if you conform to that external reality. If there are truths revealed to us in Scripture, you do well to conform yourselves to an external reality. That's been flipped. Reality now is found inside oneself. Without any undue influence, you're invited to discover your own truth and uh, when you're ready, present to the world your reality and their job is to simply affirm you. They cannot judge. There's no basis for them to judge you. They're simply to celebrate. You have found what's deep inside you as you've curated and created as this in-control consumer the self-identity that you want to manifest. Do you recognize that? Is that the culture you swim in? Is that the messages you hear in marketing if you take the moment to reflect on it? You see, in consumer culture, everything is commodified. It's the rule. Everything is abstracted from its origin. It's cut off any relationship to uh, community or history or tradition. All those things are kind of hidden from us. And they're just presented as options. Uh, let me try and illustrate this. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that all of you swimming in this culture are sinning by being in the culture. I'm just saying this is the reality. We can't undo the culture, but we have to have an awareness about it. So what is it like? Here's some examples. Like when you go to the grocery store, and you look in the fruit and produce. How often do you look at the labels to see where that fruit comes from? Do you do that? I mean, one week the apples are from Kent City and the next week they're from Chile. But they're abstracted from their origin. We don't know anything about the provenance of, of the labor conditions, the transportation footprint. They're just shiny apples. And there's these and these choices and these choices. They're disconnected. Um, I mean, there's oranges. There's always oranges. Does anybody know when orange season is? Like, when do they... When are oranges harvested? Where do, are the oranges from Florida? Are they from California, somewhere else? 
See, you're not supposed to ask those questions. You're just supposed to buy the oranges. Find the shiniest, most colorful ones, take them home. And there's, uh, you know, grapes and grapefruit and bananas. They're just all opportunities out of context from all over the world, and they're just available for you to assemble as a consumer in ways that please you. Now, I'm not saying I don't like choices. I like fruit. But they're disconnected from seasonal harvest. They're disconnected from locality. They're just out of context presented as pieces for me to, to arrange at my pleasure. The the difference between what we have come to know and experience uh, as consumers really stood out to me a few years ago after um, I took a group of interns from Lake Ann Camp to Cuba. And we had been invited there to do some camp training. And um, at the end of the week, we were in um, the city, and there's the square, and um, our host there said, let's go get ice cream. Now, in the square, there were two ice cream shops. And we went to the first one, and they said, we have no ice cream. The, the workers' jobs were to be there and have the store open. They had no ice cream to sell, but they could tell us that. So we go to the other one. They had ice cream. And you wait in line, and as you're waiting, um, you learn there's one choice you're gonna have pineapple ice cream. When it's your turn to order, you're simply ordering how many servings? Because that's, that's the choice. Except on our day, before we got to the front, the bin of pineapple was empty and they opened a new one and it was mango. So now you get mango ice cream. But they open one at a time and that's your choice. That's how it works. And nobody was angry about this. It's just how we rolled down there. I came back from that trip. Uh, it was late spring. A week later, I was going to one of our daughter's college graduations. Uh, we were in the suburbs of Chicago and a brand stopped at a gas station, brand new, went in, and they had the largest soft drink uh, fountain selection I have ever seen in my life. 48 choices. And then teas and frozen drinks and coffees. It was really actually overwhelming after coming from a week in Cuba where there were no choices. Now you're overwhelmed with choices. And in consumer culture, more is always better. More choices is always better because your job is to put together, to curate, to cultivate things the way you want them. This flows over into how we consume media. You don't have to listen to the same radio station as everybody else. You put your playlist together. You choose your podcast. In fact, you listen to the news sources that you want to listen to who won't tell you anything inconvenient. You are creating for yourself 
the ecosystem of all this information and consumption, but you are in the command center. You are in charge. And for many people, because this is the default way we make our way in this culture in the world, that's how they approach their spiritual self-construction project. They'll walk into church as the one in control of what pieces am I interested in as I put together the spiritual quest that I'm on. There's things I like. Maybe I like the music. Or maybe I like this program. But there's no orientation from the culture that says I'm actually stepping into something that is larger and, and uh, more profound than myself that I'm invited to listen in and submit to. The consumer culture does not prepare us for that. So people can gladly say things like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm putting some things from the spiritual part of the salad bar on my plate. And I'm making these arrangements as they are of interest to me. And there are some churches who kind of assess this cultural reality and say, we, commodification is the way it is, so let's commodify Jesus. Let's make sure Christianity, Christianity is the shiniest, most prominent, brightest, most user-friendly thing on the shelf. Let's just get it out there. Let's know, learn what we know from marketing and, uh, and uh, let's get it there. But consumerism also has a dark side. Not only does it say you need to build it, you need to be you, you need to, you need to create your own thing. We have some suggestions for you. Here's a brand, here's a product, here's something that will make you uh, fulfilled and inherent in that is this you're really dissatisfied with what you already have and actually once you get this you'll be dissatisfied with this soon enough because we'll have something better for you again this is what I'm trying to point out that's the culture and if we adopt that mindset to everything we do what keeps us from going into church this way it's normal in this culture to assemble the pieces that make you the way you want things to be and when you become dissatisfied to shed and buy the next, acquire the next, move on to the next. And this culture, not, I mean, this is not changing any time in our lifetime. This is, this is the reality that we are going to live with. Imagine the challenges such a posture creates in a church that has a view of some things like authority or discipline or the protection of sound doctrine and orthodoxy.
We're not predisposed in this culture to lean into those kinds of things. Have you, have you ever heard somebody say something like, uh, when you're discussing something about um, Scripture or um, the Gospel or, or God's world, and they say something like, well, I, I, I wouldn't believe in a God like that. You ever hear some, somebody make that statement? Here's a good counter question. Does the God you would believe in ever disagree with you? Because if the God you would believe in will never disagree with you, who really is your God? You, because you're here in this church accustomed to hearing God's word proclaimed, know what it's like to get your toes stepped on once in a while. Because you know that your heart has been under the pressures of deformation through the week and the, the wooing calls of the idols have tried to take the compass of your heart and point it somewhere else and you come back and that's pointed out in God's word, proclaimed in truth and you're invited to repent and believe once again. If you're the consumer in charge, you don't have to deal with anything inconvenient. Well, Moraine, quickly then. If I spend this much time talking about a problem, maybe I should uh, give you just some hope of some solution. How do you resist? How do you respond? If, if in any way these things actually describe what we encounter and you're trying to shape ministry and you want to be faithful as a church and as church leaders and as a pastor, what can you do? I've got some suggestions. Let me share three. And I might just address you, Craig, on some of this. Though everybody, y'all can listen in. Craig, remind your church that you're playing the long game. Remind them that the Holy Spirit is already at work preparing this people to stand confidently and unashamed before Christ at His appearing. That the world is passing away along with its desires, but everyone who, deals, um, who does the will of God abides forever. A good dose of 1 John 2 there. See, one of, the, one of the agreements of the cultural secular age is like, let's all agree to this. There's only the here and now. There's no eternal. There's nothing outside the system. Let's pretend like if those things are true, they're irrelevant. You have not signed on to the contract of that agreement. Point people to the long game. Remember, there's, there's still... Uh, movement four of the gospel. Christ is returning and will set all things right. To be found unashamed at that day is to be living with a certain confidence that that day is coming. It is to be people of hope. Faith, love, and hope go together in the New Testament and hope um, 
is not the way we use the word so often as just a wish or a desire. I, you know, I hope it doesn't snow. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope uh, this team wins. Uh, like it may happen, it might not happen. No, the hope, the hope of the New Testament is that the risen Christ is going to return and set all things right. And it is absolutely certain, just yet future. You haven't received it. It is easier to resist the errors of the consumer culture if you are reminded of the long game. This world and its desires are fleeting. They're not fulfilling. It's passing away. Something good and better is coming. Live in light of that. That's one. Second, let me suggest that you celebrate contentment. Contentment will be manifest in gratitude and generosity. We aren't the initiators. We aren't in the control center. We are the responders and the recipients of God's good gifts. And when we acknowledge with gratitude that we're not in control, but every good thing comes from a good God, it decenters us. And when we have that posture that God who has lavishly poured out good on us invites us to the blessing of giving to others, for others, letting go of resources that don't need to be hoarded in generous acts of giving decenters me puts my consumer-oriented needs off the throne. And when you celebrate contentment, when you can um, regularly provide opportunity for gratitude and generosity, it will counter the grip of the consumer culture orientation. It's radically resistant to give instead of get what's next for me. And let me do this for the third one. Find joy in accepting limits. Just because something can be done doesn't mean it has to be done. In a culture that says you can be anything, you can do anything, don't let anybody dissuade you. Recognize that you are finite and limited, limited in strength, in attention, in hours, and capacity. And in fact, you serve a God who delights in turning things upside down from the prevailing culture. As he Paul talked to Corinth, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. When you can embrace your limits and finiteness, 
Not only will it serve you, you are an example. Occasionally you'll find that you cannot be in two places at once. Go ahead and just be in one. There may be a day when you are not feeling well and you have to say, not today for me. And you have to trust that the living Christ who loves this church even more than you do will care for the church that day. All of these things decenter us from thinking we're the most important and we are curating everything the way we want with the hopes of fulfillment that is fleeting. One thing can be said for idols is they will always, always, always disappoint you. They can never make good on their promise. When we can identify their influence, identify their deforming character, when we can identify that a pull that wants to turn the compass of our hearts, develop the habits and the practices that run counter and may seem the oddest things in the world around us. Play the long game. Celebrate contentment. Embrace the limits. This church isn't the only church in Grand Rapids. Your call is not to be everything to everyone in this community. Your call is to be what has God placed Forest Hills Baptist Church to be in this moment with these opportunities, with this collective set of gifts. Lean into that and accept the limits of that. You have the great joy of knowing, of looking back for over 20 years to see God has been at work here. And the confidence that only God is the explanation for many of the things that has happened. And God remains uh, committed to the program of his church and has in this coming set of chapters good things for you. And they may in ways be different they're always going to be different. But the long game says that God in Christ and by his spirit is conforming us into the image of Christ so that on that coming day, we will stand before him confident and unashamed. And God has given you, church, the gift of this pastor to be part of that preparation and process. God gives good gifts thankful for this one.